Well, if you want to grab one of the church Bibles, we're going to turn back to the book of Mark, this account of the life of Jesus that we've been uh, working through this term. And what we'll do is that we'll, we'll read the passages as, as we go through, but it'll be helpful to have it open in front of you. Um, what I say now has got really only va- any value if it's in accordance with what the Bible says. Um, and so it's good for you to have that in front of you to see if what I'm saying is, is what God says. Um, so if you've got one of the, the Red Church Bibles, it's page 1010, Mark chapter 7. And let's start where Mark starts. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus. And we'll stop there because Mark starts this chapter with a, uh, the literary uh, word equivalent of a, a musical motif that's what they call it in films that bit of music that when it comes before you see anything on the screen you know what's happening so if you've ever seen star wars you've heard that bit of of music that goes and what's coming you haven't seen it what's coming darth vader yeah star trek the 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 um i can't remember what it's called now the uh the darth vader the baddies are coming it's that bit of music and mark uses these words, they'd come from Jerusalem to give us a heads up that something's about to happen. A confrontation is, is going to take place. As we've been going through the life of Jesus so far, Jesus has based himself not in the, the capital, not in Jerusalem, but he's, he's out on the margins. He's been operating in Galilee, dealing outside of the capital, away from where all the big people and the big power is, He's with the small people, the insignificant, the, the, the downtrodden, the outsiders. And now as Mark tells us that these Pharisees, these religious leaders have come from Jerusalem, we're supposed to hear that, that background music. A challenge is coming, a challenge for Jesus, a challenge of Jesus and his work. That's the setup. And why do they come? What what happens when they arrive? Verse 2, and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So the setup is that there's a challenge coming and now here we have the the accusation. Jesus, your disciples, your followers are eating with unclean hands. And at this point we want to just step back and say, well, what is going on here? This this sounds a a bit weird. So the Bible comes in a big storyline picture it comes from that the, the christianity comes from from judaism that there is a, a one god and a god who chose for himself a people and spoke to that people and gave them his law his commands he gave them instructions about how they were to live how they were to interact with him and one of the things that god did was given uh, in, in the law was to give them signs things that pointed beyond the, the physical to the spiritual reality physical signs to show the spiritual reality and so God's people that the Jews the Israelites were told that there were certain things that if they did them would make them unclean 
would separate them from God, which would prevent them from joining with the rest of the people in worshipping God, in coming to to God wherever he was. So things like food, the types of food that they could or couldn't eat. There were rules for what happened after bodily discharges, menstruation, periods. There were these things that would make you ceremonially unclean would stop you for a time coming to to God and to meet with God's people. Disease, sickness, all these things that are are very easily outwardly seen, easily recognized, and that would show that you are not right to come before God. God uses these things to, to teach his people that they It's not about food, but that they are not deserving of coming into his presence. If we were to update it to today's uh, language, we'd say there'd be certain rules before you could go to Buckingham Palace and meet the Queen. You wouldn't go in your tracky bottoms and your, you know, old jumper that you use for painting in that's got sort of stains and interesting colours that you don't even have and you've never even painted with. In the same way, there were laws that God had given to teach the people that if they were going to come before him, come and meet with him, they had to be clean. They needed to be right. And what had happened over the years, over the generations, is that the Jewish people had taken these rules and laws that God had given them, and they'd added to them. They'd added some traditions, things that would help them, they thought, better keep the original rules. They'd added traditions. And so, rather than just what God had said, they'd added some other things. They'd put some more boundaries in place to make sure that they would be clean. Imagine if uh, you go up to the top of a a cliff, and there's a, a sign saying, don't come beyond this point, danger. And some well, well-meaning person might say, wow, that, that sign that says don't go beyond this point is, is actually really close to the cliff edge. We better put up a a fence that's actually just a a step further away from the cliff edge so that people don't even get to the sign. So we'll just make it a little bit more. And and then somebody else comes along and thinks, you know what, that fence that you've put up, that's quite close as well. So maybe we should take two step backs and we'll put another fence up. And somebody said, we'll just put another fence up. And we'll just put another fence up. That's what had happened. Well-meaning people, the elders, the traditions had built up about how this people that God had saved, had rescued, had called to himself would, would stay right with God. And God had given his laws and people had said, okay, we don't even want to get close. We'll just add a, another couple, another couple of layers that will protect us. And these things, these, these rules, these extra rules had built up and built up. And now they were fully entrenched. And so Mark can write and talk about the tradition of the elders. And so everybody knew, okay, there's the law of God, but there's also this extra layer, this tradition that really, really, if you, if you properly want to take God seriously, if you want to seem to be take God seriously, you won't just keep the laws, but you'll keep the traditions as well. And these religious leaders come from Jerusalem, coming to, to see, to watch, to challenge Jesus, 
They see his disciples and they say they're not keeping to the traditions. And the emphasis is, is not so much on the disciples, it's on Jesus. The one that they're following. Let me read verse 5 again. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Jesus is saying, you're not helping people, you're hindering. You're not bringing people closer to God. You're allowing, you're maybe even encouraging them to be, to be separate from God. They're breaking the rules, Jesus. Aren't you supposed to be, you know, this great teacher? Aren't you supposed to be raising the standards? Jesus, your guys, your guys are, are second class. That's the accusation that the Pharisees bring. Let's see Jesus' response, reading verse 6. He, Jesus, replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. Jesus says you are hypocrites. You religious leaders, you Pharisees, have come down from Jerusalem and you're pointing out where other people break your rules. But you're hypocrites. And he quotes to them from the very Bible that they claim and, and to love and they, they will know so thoroughly. He quotes from what God had said through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before. And he says, of these Pharisees, these rule keepers, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. And then Jesus sets out an example. And here's what he says in today's language. You Pharisees are running a tax avoidance scheme. This is what's really going on. You claim to be model citizens but you are tax avoiders. That's what he says, verse 9, let's read it. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. That's quite a claim. These men would have been known as law keepers. They were the best of the best. They didn't just keep the big laws, they kept the little laws. And they kept not just the little laws, but the traditions. They were law keepers par excellence. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew that they gave exactly what they should give. They were seen. They were praying. They were fasting. They were religious people of the very best kind. But verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. That you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban. Not Corbin, Corban, okay? That is devoted to God. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother, thus you nullify the word of God by your own tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like that. Now, without getting into the technicalities, here's what they've done they'd set aside a chunk of their wealth and their money and possessions and said, we are giving this, very publicly, so everybody could see, we are giving this to God. So this part of my estate, this part of my money is given over to God. 
And they'd done it and then said, yeah, but I don't need to worry about mum and dad. Obviously, I would have done, but because I've given all this to God, that's far better, so I don't need to worry about the commandment. It is a tax avoidance scheme. It is get out of what I'm supposed to be doing so that I can do this big thing which is so impressive to people and I think is impressive to God. And Jesus says, you come here, come down and say to my followers that they are unclean, that they are defiled because they don't follow some extra tradition that's been added on and yet you broadly walk around ignoring one of the ten prime rules, the most well-known, the most obvious, and you say, oh, but we don't have to keep that because of this. They are hypocrites. They don't even keep the law. They're too busy keeping their own extra rules. And Jesus quotes Isaiah and says of them, everybody thinks that you're religious. Everybody thinks that you must be closer to God than they are but you worship him in vain. The outwardly righteous are inwardly rancid. They stink. They're false. So let's stop there and say, hey, this is a warning. It's a warning to people like us. We must be so careful about the religious tendencies of our hearts. The desire to make and keep rules that would bring us into the circle and put other people out of the circle. Rules that are there to to rule others out and to rule us in. And what we'll notice is if we have hearts that are tender towards that. And let's be blunt, if you've been in church a while, this will be a temptation for you. The temptation is to add rules, whether we call them rules or not, that make me look good and make other people look bad. Like what? Like about what you do or don't watch. That I can think, if, certain pe- if people watch a certain program, wow, they are clearly, well, if they're Christians, only just. If they would watch that or, or rules about what you do or don't do on a Sunday. I vividly remember growing up and loving sport, and I remember that I can remember the looks that some people in church would give me if I, you know, sneak a tennis ball in to, to mess about with after church. That would be the height of offence to God that I'd be throwing a tennis ball around in the back of church. And yet I'm just like that. I'm just like that in wanting to add on to what God said. And saying, if people were really Christians, if they really knew God, well, they wouldn't do this. And they wouldn't do that. Or they would do this. Or they would do that. And because of the state of my heart, those rules that I make are always ones that I I think I'm doing all right on. That draw me within the circle. If my judgment on you is only based on whether you hold the same values as me in the same way that I do, then I'm right there with the Pharisees. I'm right there with the hypocrites. Now, I've got to say at this point, I'm not saying that we can never judge anybody. 
The Bible teaches us that the church should be a community of people, Christians, who are holding each other to account and encouraging each other on in godliness. And so we are called to call each other to God's law. But it's when we add on. That's that religious heart where we add on to God's word and say, if people were really, really Christian, they'd they'd be just like me. And as I draw that line, I can push other people down so it raises me up. We've got to be very careful that we don't become like that. And if we are like that, if we see the seeds of that sin in our heart, we've got to repent of it, turn away from it, run from it. Because that's how a church becomes a very ugly place where nobody's welcome unless you're just like us. How does Jesus respond? Well, he responds, I guess he has a a two-tier response. There's a public response. He calls the crowd in. And then secondly, after that, he then goes further with the disciples. Let's read on from verse 14. Again, Jesus calls the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. The crowd have been watching on, listening in to this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's a confrontation that always draws a crowd. Jesus here, I think, so helpfully shows us that just because the Pharisees are hypocrites, he's not going to do away with the whole topic of being unclean. I think we have a tendency we in our culture probably, to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Where a key person, a key leader is is compromised in some way, then we decide that we're not going to listen to anything that they've got to say. Well, Jesus is, is not doing that here. He's not saying that the Pharisees are wrong to have a category about being unclean. He says, no, there is an uncleanness, but it doesn't come in the way that they think it does. It's not about what goes into the body, into the person. Rather, he says, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. There is still a state of uncleanness. There is such a thing as being defiled in the eyes of God. And we experience that. We experience the reality in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own worlds, of knowing that we're not right. We're not who or what we ought to be. We know the experience of guilt. We know the experience of shame at our own actions, at our own thoughts, at our own words. We know what it is to know that we are not what we ought to be. We know what it is to, to stand in the, in the, in the shoes of, of Lady Macbeth, who commits murder and then in her dreams is haunted by the blood that's on her hands. If you read Macbeth, she's doing this. She's trying to wipe the blood off her hands in her sleep. Or maybe a more modern example is, is the Casino Royale, the James Bond film, where the, I can't remember her name, the Bond girl, 
sees the fight, gets involved, has got blood on her hands, and she's, she's sat there in the shower, fully clothed, and, and she can't clean herself. We know what it is to be stained, sometimes by the actions of others, but often, for all of us, by our own actions. There is an uncleanness, even if we've got no recognition of God. We know what it is to, to feel as though we're, we have no right to stand. And Jesus says that what makes a person unclean before God is, is not what has happened to them externally or even what they have done or will do or what they haven't done or won't do, but what makes us unclean is what comes out of us. And this is where, in verse 17, we find that the crowd dispersed. Jesus is alone with his disciples, and he, and he unpacks that further. So let's read on from verse 17. After he had left the crowd <clears throat> excuse me, and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. They want to explain it to them. And this is where we, we get an insight into how big a thing Jesus is saying here. How shocking, how profound it is. Because the disciples were, were Jewish men. They'd grown up seeing these physical signs of what it means to be unclean and, and dominated by, by food, especially as men. They didn't have the whole you know, period thing to deal with. If you'd ask them, you know, what does it mean to be unclean before God? You know, like all men, they'd have thought about food first. And now Jesus is saying, it's not about food. It's not about what goes into you. It's about what goes out of you. There's a, a bit of toilet humor from Jesus, if I can be a little bit delicate. Come on, guys, you know what happens when you eat. It goes in and then the waste comes out. It's not that that makes you unclean before God. Change your thinking. They don't get it. Why are you so dull, he says to them. Following that vivid description of why it isn't food that makes them clean, Jesus delivers the, the punchline. What is it? What is it that makes us unclean? Verse 20, he went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. It comes from inside. I want to pause for a minute and just think about that attention that we've got going on in our current culture. Because there are two things that are battling as we examine what how humans work, how our society works. And these two things, two pressures we might talk about, are, are these. Personal accountability for what a person has done, and then the 
the circumstantial influence. Okay, so two things, personal accountability and, and what I call circumstantial influence. Our immense knowledge of, of people, of how we work, and the fact that psychologists and, and all sorts of other people have dug into why people do what they do shows us that people are, are shaped and influenced by their circumstances. So you may have heard people talk about how there's a, a high proportion of sexual abusers who themselves were sexually abused. Or that there's a strong correlation between parents who smoke and then children who smoke. There was an advert a few years ago for, for the old uh, phone company called Orange. And it kind of summed this up. It says there's this um, a, a, a list of people. This guy's talking and he talks about how he is his mother, he is his father, he is his teachers in school, he is his best friend, he is the guys that bullied him, he is his boss, he is this woman that he dated, he is all the women that he's dated. And it ends with this line, I am who I am because of everybody. And it's, it's to be honest, it's a slightly weird advert for a phone company, nobody's on the phone, it's, 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 it's odd. But that line, I am who I am because of everybody it captures this spirit of, of the age that when something happens you can't just say well it's their fault because people act because of the influences of the people around them the situations the circumstances that they've experienced why did you do this well it it has something to do with their parents it has something to do with the way they were brought up it has something to do with their friends and we recognize that, and we recognize that there's some truth in it. I think we see it in schools. There's a generation now who, who look back and say, you know, when I was in school, if I did something wrong, I was called on it, I was probably beaten for it, and that was that. If you did something, it was your fault. And that generation looks on at the current generation of kids that are in school, and the... the, the, the sort of narrative that comes out why did this child misbehave well it's because they weren't diagnosed properly it's because they didn't have the right amount of help and the older generation looks at the younger generation and just goes that's just nonsense that you've got to say that child misbehaved because he chose or she chose to misbehave and the older generation says this all this modern thinking is, is excuses and the younger generation, my generation, struggles to actually nail down and say to somebody, you are guilty, you chose to do this. There's this tension between personal accountability and circumstantial influence. Can we ever blame somebody? Can we ever say somebody is guilty, they alone should carry the can? Our culture struggles with this tension. And it forces us often to either shy away from individual guilt or to just nonsense any of the, the complexities of all the different influences on somebody's life. And Jesus speaks into that tension. And he says this, what makes us unclean, what defiles us, is what comes out of our hearts. It's not to say that other factors aren't at play. Notice here, he doesn't say the actions 
What does he say? For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Just the seeds. The seeds of wanting to do what I want. Doing what's best for me. The seeds of selfishness. The seeds of self-gain. The seeds of putting other people down so that I feel or look better. Jesus says that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Listen to those words again. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And Mark leaves us there. It's the final word in this particular story. A blunt dead end. And I think what Mark's trying to do is to get us to address this a question here. Where does that leave me? If that is the true reality of what I am on the inside, of who I really am, It forces us to ask the question, is that me? Is that my heart? And if it is, how do I fix it? Because if the problem is internal, not external, then I can't fix it externally. I think that we're used to trying to fix our brokenness, to cover the stain of our sin, of our wrongness, to cover up our guilt, we're used to trying to deal with that externally, external solutions. I think we're like people who who own a car and they focus on the outside. They focus on cleaning it. Maybe week after week, my next door neighbour, every Saturday, out cleaning his car. And they focus on getting the, the, the scratches painted back and the dents popped out. And they focus, we focus on making the car look good we might even get a little bit internal, make sure the brakes are sorted. But we focus on everything but the engine. And ultimately, the car is 99% about the engine. Because if the engine doesn't work, you're going nowhere. You might get down a hill once. But you're not going anywhere. I think sometimes that's what we're like, focusing on the outward, focusing on the behaviour, and Jesus says the problem's the heart. And Mark wants us to, to stop and just ponder, is it me? Is he talking about me? Is that the reality of who I am? Well, Mark stops there, but we're not going to. What is the solution? Now, I guess there are two things. If Jesus is right, if we are unclean because of our hearts, there are two things that need solving. We need a new heart. If this is the the gunk that's that's been spewed out of our hearts, even if only at a thought level, 
even if we've never acted on any of those thoughts, but if, if that is our control center, if that is what our desires are for, we need a new heart with new desires. But secondly, what do we do with all the things that we've already done? What do we do about yesterday? What do we do about the thoughts, the actions, the words, the things that make us unclean before God? Modern medicine's unbelievable, isn't it? And you hear about what can be done, what doctors are capable of these days, even now transplanting hearts. Isn't it amazing that you can have a heart that is malfunctioning and doctors can now keep you alive whilst they remove your heart and put another one in? And it's, it, I mean, if you just stop and think about it, you just go, that, that is amazing. Of course, to have a heart transplant, to have a new heart, that heart must come from somebody who's died, a donor. Death brings life for the person that receives it. That's a small picture of what must happen to us. We need a new heart for our old, original heart that is so broken. The sort of heart that spews out the thoughts that Jesus lists in verses 21 to 23. But listen now to the plan God laid out hundreds of years before Jesus came through a man, a prophet called Ezekiel. Listen to these words. God's promise to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. You see, hundreds of years before Jesus announces that this is the state of our hearts, God has promised that he's going to deal with our hearts cleansing us from all the stains of our life, the shames, the filth, the rejection of God, all the, what the Bible calls sin. Every time that we choose to reject God as, our, as the one in charge, as the one who loves us, every time we say, God, I hear what you're saying, but, but I want to do it differently. Every time where God says, this is good, and we say, no, God, that's not. Every time God says, this is bad for you, and we say, yeah, but it's kind of fun. It's easier. There's more payoff for me. Every time we say, I think God's got it wrong, and we say, I'm going my way. And if you imagine that every one of those thoughts, let alone the words, let alone the deeds, every one of those is a mark against us, and God says, I will, I will wash you clean and a new heart. A heart. The picture's there. He says a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. A heart of stone that can, that can fuel no life. A stone heart can't pump blood, can't produce goodness, can't keep alive, only brings death. He says, I'll replace it with a heart of flesh, one that pumps, one that moves you 
to love me and to trust me and to go my way. This, this is the picture that God gives us. He says, this is what I'm promising. I will change you from the inside out. Listen to this picture of God's people given in Revelation chapter 7. Because this is the picture, the promise of what God will do. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And later on, John says this. He said, one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And the answer is this. They, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's a picture of, of heaven. Joan and I were at a funeral on, on Friday, and this was red. This passage, and the question I was asked of the person who had died, a, a dear Christian lady, where is she now? Well, this is the answer. For those that are trusting in God, they are in heaven with God, and they are wearing white robes. They have been purified. They have been cleaned. And did you hear how they'd done it? How they'd been washed clean of all the stain of guilt and st- sin of shame. They had washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And that's, well, it doesn't make sense. You don't, you don't make something clean by washing it in blood, especially not white robes. But it's a symbol. It's symbolic language. How have they been cleaned? How have they been brought into God's presence? Well, it's life through death. And it's the death of the Lamb that they are worshipping, the one who's enthroned in heaven, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the one killed in the place of sinners so that they they might not bear their guilt, that they might not suffer and, and suffer the punishment that they are deserving of. Jesus is the Lamb. He is punished in our stead, taking away the stain of our evil thoughts and evil deeds. His blood cleans us. His death is for us. And when we trust in him, when we trust and say, I accept this offer of life that you bring, this cleaning that you offer, Jesus, he gives us a new heart. He puts his spirit within us. He changes us and says, I will change what you want. I will give you my heart my life so that you will live in the way that I want you to live and you will trust me that my way is the best thing for you that will bring you joy and life and goodness and satisfaction so both our need for our stain to be taken away and our hearts to be changed is met in Jesus at the cross his death and his resurrection his new life given and shared with us and so this beggars the question, well, have you, have, I, have we known this, this new heart, this what the, Jesus elsewhere is going to call a new birth? 
Are you a new person? Do you know what it is to have a new heart and begin to want what God wants? It is no guarantee because we are in this place that that has happened. It's not. No guarantee at all. So we've got to ask ourselves this question, has God changed my heart? And how do I know? How do I see Jesus? How do I see the Lamb? Do I, however poorly, however weakly, do I love him? Do I delight in him, in what he's done? Does the thought of this picture of heaven to be gathered with his people, worshipping him, does that fill me with, with joy? I want to lay that question before us. How do I stand before God? Am I clean before God because of Jesus? Or am I a Pharisee who's drawing lines to make sure that I get in? And the evidence is that is that I'm putting other people out. I look down on others with, with scorn. Turn to him today. Ask him to give you a new heart, and he will. He will. As we close, let me give us two implications of this passage. If the, the heart of the problem is the heart, when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to together, us encouraging each other as his people to follow Jesus, we need to focus on the heart, not outward behavior. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's getting after that same idea that we are what we are inside. Good behavior is not enough. And I think I especially want to push it on this on when it comes to parenting. The temptation as parents is to, to want to shape our children so that they do the right things. Because it's really hard when they don't. If you're in the middle of, you know, York train, station, uh, train museum and your child is going ballistic at the thought of being put in a pram and several people are walking past and your child is screaming and shouting and thinking about biting you it's hard I imagine somebody's had that experience recently and it's easy as parents but but in discipleship generally to to want people to act rightly and therefore to focus on outward behavior but if the heart of the problem is the, is the heart, what we should be doing is trying to address the heart. I think my wife's you know, great at this. She'll, she won't like me for saying it, but she, as she parents our children, she's got a great way of, of asking them or even just telling them what's going on inside, why they're acting in the way they are. So it's not just that they've not done what they're asked, but, but saying you're doing this because you're angry in your heart because you didn't get what you wanted not just behave it's like a guy called ted tripp who's written a book shepherd in a child's heart and and it's just i've only read the first quarter but that's where he starts dealing with the heart of children i'd recommend it we will not behaviorally modify our children into a right relationship with god 
in the same way, those that we are discipling, those that we are around, just making them outwardly behave in the right way won't make them right with God. We have to point people to explore their own hearts. Why is it that I act in the way that I act? And when we do that, then we've got the opportunity to point them to Jesus and say, here's how Jesus meets the needs that you have, the desires that you have. Here's how he addresses them. Here's how he fulfills them in a way that is better than what you are choosing. The second implication is this, for, and finally for, for us this afternoon, as we think about our mission as a church, we are not seeking religion. We are not seeking to make people around us better, more like us. We want to see them reborn and become more like Jesus. Our town does not, does not need to, to behave better. They need to know Jesus. They need to know that there is a God who can deal with their sin, with their stain, with the guilt and shame. A God who offers, promises to transform them from the inside out. We shouldn't expect people to behave better. Our expectations of people in this world should be, should be pretty low. If we think about what we would be like if God had not saved us, whether in that wild, younger son sort of way, just doing whatever we like, whatever makes me happy, or if we were going the other way, be like the older son, saying to God, you owe me. Look at my good living. Look at the lines that I've drawn that I'm in and other people are out. That might be more behaviorally moral, but it's so ugly and so unloving. That's what each of us would be were it not for Christ. And so as a church, at the heart of what we do is saying to the world, you need a new heart. Here's the evidence. But you can see it for yourself. Let me tell you about Jesus, the one who offers you a changed heart. That should be at the heart of what we do. It should be a heart of, of, our, of our outreach, whether together or individually, in our families, with our neighbours, with our colleagues. And I guess that shows us that we need God. We need God to work to, for people to be saved. Because we might, might just about be able to force people to change their behavior. But we can't change people's hearts. Only God can do that. Let me pray. Father, we, we pray and ask, Lord, that for any here who do... Lord, we talk about not knowing you. Lord, in today's this context of what Jesus has taught us today, we say for those that have not had their hearts changed. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would change their hearts. Father, they would come to love Jesus, the one who takes away our stay. Father, for ourselves, Lord, we repent for where we have been just like the Pharisees, hypocrites, drawing lines that get us in and put other people out. Father, we're, 
We're sorry that we have forced people to think that they are less. Well, because they don't meet our standards. Father, forgive us for that. And Father, we pray, Lord, that we would, as a church, be addressing the the real issue, the heart, with each other. Lord, that we would be seeking to point each other to Jesus. Lord, that we would be questioning our, our motives. Lord, that we would be humbly seeking after you to change our hearts. Lord, as well as those of the hundreds of thousands of people, Lord, that that live around us. Lord, give us hearts that love Jesus, that delight in his death for us, his life shared with us. Lord, the future that is in store for us because we are united with him. Lord, continue to change us and shape us, we pray, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.